Good morning. I hope that you're thankful to be here, thankful to be with God's people, thankful to be here under the authority of his word. Probably, I would say for all of us, maybe not all of us, but at least most of us, it's probably the case that the most familiar passages of the, of the Bible, as you can look back on your past and growing up, maybe some of you grew up in a Christian context, maybe some of you didn't, but even looking back since you have been within the context of the people of God within the church, uh, probably the most familiar bits of scripture that you have come across are from the Sermon on the Mount. They seem to be those that keep being repeated. They seem to be those passages that are always on the lips of Christians. And it's also the case that uh, these tend to be some of the most familiar passages of Scripture in our culture. So most people who maybe have no knowledge of Christianity, no knowledge of the Bible, would recognize what you're, what you're talking about when you, when you say the Lord's Prayer. I can remember when we first got, when I first got to Marine Corps boot camp at Paris Island and there were a group of guys at night who would kind of gather together and we would say the Lord's Prayer together. And oftentimes we would just gather together, it'd be a few of us, and we would just say the Lord's Prayer and then that was it. And then when it came time on Sunday, you know, to go and go to the chapel service, there were, uh, that, that group that would say the Lord's Prayer at night became a lot smaller in terms of the people who wanted to go and worship. So it's something that people think of and they think of Christian expression, uh, a, a religious activity. It's one of the first things that comes to mind. And then, of course, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you is the way I memorized it. And you probably memorized it in the same way. So that's the, this is the golden rule. Of course, everyone accepts in our culture largely accepts and appreciates this idea, which comes from the lips of Jesus in chapter seven of Matthew's gospel. And of course, the favorite of our culture seems to be judge not, lest you be judged, just ripped right up out of its context and thrown your way when you make any kind of definitive proclamation about any sort of mor morality or, or any sort of what is good and, and right and true, uh, uh, immediately, boom, you get hit with that one. Gets quoted right out of context, judge not, lest you be judged from the first verse of chapter Seven. So today we begin our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, a study of Matthew chapters five to seven. You can see that on the back poster there. And then we have posters here, one from the beginning, towards the beginning of, uh, over here, towards the beginning of, of this passage, and then one towards the end. So it's this three-chapter section, which, which has a unique place in the history of Christianity, the Sermon on the Mount, as it has been called. The title, The Sermon on the Mount, does not go all the way back to the beginnings of Christianity. It goes back to uh, whom we know as St. Augustine. Just call him Saint. That's what he's been known as. We'll just preface his name with that. All of God's people are saints. But Augustine, or Augustine of Hippo, was the first one in his commentary on this particular passage. Now, other, other church fathers would, would write about this passage, but it was Augustine who singled this passage out and called it the Sermon on the Mount. And that has just stuck, as most things Augustine did and said have stuck throughout the history of the church for over 1,500 years. This has been the way the church has referred to this three-chapter section of Matthew's gospel. Uh, 
And funny, a funny thing here is as I was preparing for this sermon, a host of books on the Sermon on the Mount were coming in the mail. Uh, to our house. So Doug would, would go on and, and he would order the resources. He'd just have them sent directly to my house. And so on the, the coffee, to, well, on the, the kitchen table, I had this pretty large stack of Sermon on the Mount books. And I'm one of those who really loves books. And uh, I, all throughout my relationship with Jennifer, my wife, I've always been a kind of show and tell type type person when it comes to my books. And so I get a new book and I show it to her and I tell her the title and I go through the table of contents and I want to show her, okay, look at all these chapters here. And then I read the back of the book to her. And of course she has absolutely no interest. Uh, you know, she couldn't care less about all of my books. And of course she couldn't care less about the table of contents of each of those. But the funny thing was, as I was showing her each of these books, I was saying, hey, look, 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 look at this one, the Sermon on the Mount. And look at this one, the Sermon on the Mount. And this one, the Sermon on the Mount. They were all essentially entitled the Sermon on the Mount or studies in the Sermon on the Mount with various subtitles. So needless to say, I'm excited about this study. I'm excited about this time that we are about to embark on. As I've said before, I don't know how long we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't plan that out beforehand intentionally. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to sort of presuppose that we're going to chop it up in this way and we're going to spend only this much time on this part. We'll just simply go through it and we will just sort of drink it in, chew it up, whatever kind of metaphor you want to use for that. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of those books I got was his studies in the Sermon on the Mount. And he asks this question, why should we study it? Why should we try to live it? Christians, that is. And the first answer he gives includes a quote from Titus. It was very interesting. I thought that was fitting. The Lord is always showing his providential care for uh, his people. And these sorts of little things always are, are meaningful to me because we see his hand so often in the tiny things. But to think as, as this, this great classic, John Stott, another, another great commentator on this, this passage, called, uh, called D. Martin Lloyd-Jones's commentary or, or series of sermons on the, studies, on the Sermon on the Mount, he called it a spiritual classic. And here we open up this, this great commentary on this great passage, and he reminds us of Titus, which we've just finished looking at. And so he gives the answer from Titus. He says, why? The Lord Jesus Christ died to enable us to live the Sermon on the Mount. He died, why? And then he quotes Titus 2.14, which we looked at over here for quite some time, that he might purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. What does he mean? Lloyd-Jones asks. He means that he died in order that I might now live the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not beyond our grasp. It is not unattainable for those for whom Christ died, for those who have been purified by his saving death. And he ends with this. He, Jesus, has made this possible for me. So let's get right to it. Let's go ahead and jump in. Jesus is calling each of us who belong to him to live out everything that we're about to study. Everything. And I think in some ways, in fact, in many ways, 
This series on this passage of God's word is it perhaps more than any other series that could be preached, perhaps more than any other sermon that could be preached on any text of the Bible is a fresh call to discipleship for all of us who follow Jesus. This is an opportunity to really dig deep into the heart and ask the question, am I a follower of Jesus? And then as a follower of Jesus, am I living this? Am I really living this thing that is in fact within my grasp? It is not beyond me. It is not unattainable. It is not just this lofty ideal that we could never reach out and touch. But it is in us. As Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. I continue another quote from Lloyd-Jones. He says, if you read the history of the church, you will find it has always been when men and women have taken this sermon seriously and faced themselves in the light of it, that true revival has come. Is that what we want for our lives, for our families? for our church. That's what we want. Revival, renewal, refreshment, power from on high, power from God. He goes on. Then let us carefully study this sermon that claims to show what we ought to be. Let us consider it that we may see what we can be, for it not only states the demand, it points to the supply, to the source of power. And then he prays this, God, give us grace to face the Sermon on the Mount seriously and honestly and prayerfully until we become living examples of it and exemplifiers of its glorious teaching. I couldn't have introduced it better, so that is the way I think we need to think about what we're about to embark on here as a church, as a church. And what Lloyd-Jones says there at the very end, seriously, honestly, and prayerfully until we become living examples of it. That is my prayer for us. That's my prayer for my own life. That's my prayer for my wife. That's my prayer for all of us, that this will truly, deeply get into the heart of each person in this room right now. Every person who's a part of this church, whether they're here today or not, who will come across these sermons on this wonderful sermon, Matthew 5 to 7. So today we come to the introduction of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. We're just sort of getting in a little bit today. We're not going to go ahead and jump into the Beatitudes. That will start, and I don't know when it will end, but that will start next week. Some people preach a sermon on every one of those Beatitudes. Some people preach a sermon on the entire set. I really don't know at this point what will, what will come next week, but we will jump into those wonderful, wonderful passages. In fact, the mountain upon which some believe historically that Jesus gave this sermon is called the Mount of Beatitudes because it is, and, and some have seen the Beatitudes as kind of a, uh, an overarching program for everything that we find within this sermon or kind of a, a heading, a way to understand everything else that is found in it. But today we're just going to dip into the opening verses, chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. And the title for today's sermon is Hear the King. Hear the King. Jesus, as we know, 
is repeatedly presented as king from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is presented as king all throughout the New Testament, but nowhere is this more pronounced than in the gospel according to Matthew. He opens up in chapter one by telling us that Jesus, Jesus the Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the anointed king, the descendant of David. He says the son of David. And we find that the entire genealogy is leaning into David and then from David is leaning into the Christ. And then we get to this story that we covered at Christmas where the angel comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him essentially to take Jesus as his own son. Jesus has been conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph is going to put her away quietly. He, he believes initially that she has committed adultery. She has, she has been unfaithful to him. And the angel comes to him in a dream and says, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so we see Joseph, the son of David, as the angel addresses him, descendant of David, legally makes Jesus his Son. So we see that Jesus is the promised Davidic king. By the way, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Bible, David is the great king of Israel. He's the one God chose. The people wanted a king like all the other nations, so they picked the tallest guy, the most robust sort of looking king-like person, and that was a flop. That was Saul. Didn't work out. Did not work out. Who did God choose? The lowly shepherd boy. Whom? His, his father did not even bring him into the room. When Samuel came to anoint, Je Jesse's sons were all brought in except for David. And Samuel goes through, nope, 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 nope. The Lord's not saying this is the one. And Samuel says, any others? And Jesse says, well, there is one more. Bring him in. And the Lord says, this is the one whom you are to anoint king. Lowly shepherd boy who by the power of God would kill Goliath and would lead God's people into a period of peace. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of that. He is the one who destroys the enemy. He is the one who brings righteousness and peace to the world. Then we get to chapter two. What do we find going on when we, when we move into chapter two? We have these wise men, these guys who have come from the east following a star, and the star has come over uh, Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and there has been the birth of a king, and they come looking for the king of the Jews. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And we find throughout chapter 2 that this king is the Christ who is foretold in Scripture. He is the ruler to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And that's chapter two. We know those very familiar from Christmas time. And then in chapter three of Matthew's gospel, we have the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. We learn about John the Baptist's birth at the beginning of the gospel of Luke. But here, John the Baptist just comes on the scene and he's preaching a message of repentance. But he's preaching this kind of message, repent for the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is at Hand. He's preparing the way for the one who is king, who will establish his kingdom. And then chapter four, after his temptation in the wilderness and John's death, Jesus begins to preach this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the king preaches the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. And then again in verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues 
and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. People liked Jesus early on and even throughout his ministry because he healed all their diseases. Can you imagine if, if there was a person who came to downtown Noonan and who was literally healing, as we find often described, every disease, every affliction of the people. I mean, we got the obvious ones like epilepsy, we have paralytics, people who can't see or hear or speak, all of these things. But we're told that he's healing every disease and every affliction. He's casting out demons. He's, he's doing all of these miracles. Can you imagine how many people would be in downtown Noonan if that were the case? I mean, how many of us in here have afflictions? I don't know. Maybe it's an ingrown toenail. It could be as, as insignificant as that. But how many of us in here have something going on that we don't like about these broken bodies? All of us do, probably. And they were coming to Jesus in the masses from all over. Chapter 4 gives us all this descriptive language about the people who are coming to Jesus from the various regions of Palestine, the various cities. They're just flocking to Jesus because he's healing them. He's doing all of these life-giving miracles. So what we have, to sum all of this up, in the Sermon on the Mount is the king describing kingdom life. We get this king from verse 1 of Matthew, son of David, the Christ. And then we get all of this descriptive language about what it means that he's king. And we'll talk a little bit of a little bit more about that later. But this king then begins to preach the kingdom and then he sits down and he begins to explain what is this kingdom thing? What is this kingdom life? What does it look like? What is this kingdom lifestyle? Sinclair Ferguson, another uh, great writer, preacher, commentator on this particular passage, a, a Scottish, a Scottish guy, speaking of the message of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, this, speaking of the sermon, is what it means to repent and to belong to the kingdom of heaven. That's amazing when you think about it. You want a description of that? So think, Jesus calls all people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus goes and he says, this is what it looks like. Once that's happened, this is what it looks like to live in repentance, to live a life that has repented. It's Matthew chapters 5 to seven. He goes on to say, the sermon is not aiming to produce a sense of hopelessness and despair in us. And perhaps that's the way you've read the Sermon on the Mount. Man, that's pretty lofty. Let me go to another passage that sounds a little more reasonable. No, the sermon is not aiming to produce a sense of hopelessness and despair in us. Rather, he says, it is intended to set before us a glorious vision of what the Lord intends our lives to become. How often we just wallow around in a kind of lukewarm, unfruitful Christian life. All of us, all of us, day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, decade to decade, just a, 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 a soft, weak Christian life. What it says here, it is intended to set before us a glorious vision of what the Lord intends our lives to become. The sermon is Jesus' manifesto. The king, it describes a regal lifestyle. 
the new behavior pattern for the new kingdom we have entered. So here's a question. It's a very simple question. Are you excited? Are you excited to get into this passage of God's holy word? Are you excited to burrow down deep into this glorious picture of following Jesus? This glorious picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. My prayer is that we'll all become increasingly excited as we get into this wonderful portion, this you know, we talked about these Titus passages being mountain peaks. There's a lot of mountain peaks in scripture. And I think as Will talked about, uh, John Piper oftentimes describes every, all these various passages, the, the greatest, most significant passage, you know, is all these ones. There are, there are many, but the Sermon on the Mount is certainly one of them. And I pray that you are excited about this journey. So who's the Sermon on the Mount for? Well, the easy answer is every single one of us who is trying to follow Jesus well. If you are a perfect Christian and you're following Jesus perfectly and you are so satisfied with your Christian life, you could just go ahead and leave right now. This isn't for you. This isn't for you. And anyone who would do that is a, is a misconception of the Christian life, obviously. But it's for every single one of us who is trying to follow Jesus well. What about particularly? Who is this for? It's for you if you're a new believer. I can remember the profound impact that this passage had on me when I was just turning to Christ. When I just turned to Christ at 18, I had, uh, I had trusted in Jesus as far as I knew it at six years old as a child, as a teenager, did not live for the Lord at all. But at 18, God did something to me that was new. He changed me. He changed me. And it, it was amazing because it was in that space of three years between 18 and 21 that it was the Sermon on the Mount was just so key to me. It was constantly coming up as I would read the Bible. As I would open up my Bible being, you know, I mean, even at that time, I think I was the kind who would just sort of open the Bible and point the finger down and find the, the passage. You know, I was, was such an immature Christian. And I, oftentimes I would find the Sermon on the Mount. I would find these passages, these bits of holiness and glory in these chapters. If you're a new believer, there is no better place to start because this is the life Jesus has given you, the Sermon on the Mount. This is your world. This is your life. If you've been aimless, so who maybe here this morning feels like there is no, there's really no aim. There's really no aim or direction or intentionality or objective to your Christian life. I mean, you're a Christian and you kind of read your Bible when you can, and you pray, you sort of come to church, you know, come gather with God's people. You're doing some stuff and you're trying to live out the Christian life, but you're just not really aiming at anything when you really think about it. You're, you're just not. There is no target on the board. This is it. This is it. This is the life that we can aim to live in the power of God. Is your life a roller coaster? Sometimes things are going really well and sometimes things are pretty bad and it's spiritual mountaintops and then there are spiritual valleys. Just one thing to the next, floating on the air kind of in your Christian life. This, I think, is the answer for that, the Sermon on the Mount. So let's read. Let's read these first couple of verses. You know, I toyed with the idea of reading the entire Sermon on the Mount, the first sermon. You all would have killed me. You, you, you don't want to, uh, you don't want to, uh, I won't do that. This kind of reminds me of that first Christmas I was here. We read the genealogy in the Christmas Eve service. I got a little bit of pushback on that, but 
Maybe that was overkill. So we won't read. <laughs> Thank you, Doug and Sharon, for, for doing that. That was sweet. Uh, you bore with me. So I won't, we won't read the entire Sermon on the Mount this morning. My prayer is that you will read it throughout the next however long we're here, daily, weekly, often, and just saturate your brain with this. Gospel community group leaders, there's nothing more important right now that you can do than saturate your brain with this sermon. Matthew 5 to 7. But today we'll look at these first two verses. Let's go to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. That's as far as we'll go today. Let's pray to the Lord. Ask for his help. Our great God and heavenly Father, may we never think that parts of your word are more inspired than others. Lord God, we recognize that everything in scripture points to Jesus, that everything in scripture is breathed out by your Holy Spirit and is profitable teaching and correction, training in righteousness, and so forth. But God, we believe, as we've experienced it, as your universal church, against which the gates of hell will not prevail, that throughout the history of your church, two millennia, this passage of scripture has been profoundly influential in the lives of your people. And so God, we pray for that. I pray for that in my own life. I pray for that for every person in this church, all of, our, all of my fellow elders, the brothers with whom I serve in leading this body. Father, I pray that for all of the men and women and boys and girls here at Four Corners. Those present this morning, those not, Lord God, would you just bring refreshment, a kind of refreshment that we've never experienced. And God, would our church be truly, deeply healthy as we conform by your spirit our lives to this sermon? God, that is what growth means. That is what health means. Help us know that and live that, believe that. God, would your spirit be present this morning, even as we just introduce this? Would your spirit make clear to our minds the weightiness of it all? And would a, a fresh flame be lit in every heart to live this truly, not in theory, but truly from this moment forward until we breathe our last breath and leave this earth. From dust you were taken to dust you shall return. God, that awaits us all. Help us not waste our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to give you a simple outline this morning to, to help us kind of get into the text. Very simple. Three things to, to look for as we introduce. And these first two verses really are kind of an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And there's much that you could say to introduce the Sermon on the Mount, but I think these three categories will help do that for us in and of themselves. Just let the text introduce it itself. Novel idea. So three things here, the preacher, the place, and the people. So first, the preacher. 
Who is this one who is speaking? We've already established the fact that this Jesus is the king who is bringing in his kingdom. We've already discussed that. And in fact, we see this king's authority at the beginning of the Sermon, of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount and at the end of this sermon. So in these opening two verses, we see that Jesus sat down. And that idea of Jesus sitting down was very, it was, it was well known then that rabbis would sit down and they would, they would do that in order to deliver an authoritative or official teaching. And so by Jesus sitting down, he is saying essentially, this is a, a binding authoritative official proclamation. Here it is. We also see that. In the following words, at the, uh, in, chapter t- in verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them saying. This idea of him opening his mouth, it introduces, it's a Semitic idea. It's a Hebrew phrase, a Hebrew idiom. And basically it means this, that he is about to deliver a solemn and significant pronouncement. And so we see his authority here clearly in these verses. And then we obviously see his authority explicitly stated at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You can flip to the end in chapter 7, verse 28. And here's what it says. This is the end. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. I'll say this very quickly. A few weeks ago, uh, my son Jake, who turns four soon this week, uh, he said, uh, Daddy, what is glory? Wow, that's hard. That's a hard one. So I tried. I stumbled and fumbled and, you know, I won't tell you what I said. You probably laugh at me. But I did my best. I did my best. And that's in that moment late at night to explain to him uh, what glory is. But here's the thing. The people were astonished at Jesus' teaching. They were in awe. They were in wonder at this teacher. It's a kind of reaction, really, to the glory of it all, the beauty of it all, the splendor of it all. It goes on, they were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They had never heard a teacher like this before. Never, never had anyone spoken like this. So we see the king's authority kind of bracketing the beginning and the end of this sermon. But there are so many other things that we could say about him from the opening chapters of Matthew. And if you just go through, this is one of the things I did very early on as I was preparing for this particular sermon, is just go through Matthew chapters 1 to 4 and just get a sense for all the Christological details. Who is this Jesus, this one who goes up, sits down on the mountain, and he speaks? Who is he? We've already talked about him being a king. But listen to this. And there's more. There's more implied, but we have at least this. He is the promised seed of Abraham. In that sense, he is the true Israelite, the perfect Israelite. He is the one miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us that that's connected to his deity, being the Son of God. He's the Savior. He is the one who fulfills prophecies. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the shepherd ruler, the one who is worthy of worship and who is of cosmic significance. He moves the stars. The stars follow him. The one who is guarded and overseen by angels. You see this repeatedly. He is God's son. He is the Lord himself. John the Baptist will prepare the way of the Lord, Yahweh. Who is the Lord he's preparing? Jesus. He is the Lord himself. 
the one worthier than the greatest prophet, the one upon whom the Holy Spirit rests and who imparts the Holy Spirit, the one who fulfills all righteousness, the beloved and righteous Son of God, the one who endured temptation and overcame the devil, the light to those who sit in darkness. That's who he is. That's who this king is who speaks. There are two major descriptors that I want to highlight for us here, which I think will help us as we approach the Sermon on the Mount. Two major things from that list I just gave you that I think are very helpful and instructive for us if we're going to interpret this three-chapter chunk rightly. First, this king, this preacher, is righteous. Very important. He is righteous. Matthew 3.17, you can flip over to that if you'd like. I realize that there are a lot of you might be on your phones or iPads or whatever else. I don't see any laptops, but um, you can get there however you'd like. Matthew 3:17. Behold, a voice from heaven said, what did God say about Jesus? God the Father looked down on Jesus. What did he say? He said this, this is my beloved son with whom I am what? Well pleased. Man, that's beautiful. Jesus was not just pleasing to the Father, he was well-pleasing to the Father. Do you remember at the beginning of creation when God created everything and at the end of his creation, Genesis 131, and behold, God saw everything that he'd, that he'd made or God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. That is exactly how God the Father looked at his son Jesus. Very good. Entirely pleasing in every respect. So that was Jesus. He is the only righteous one. He fulfills all righteousness. And this is, this is what this tells us as we come to the Sermon on the Mount. It tells us that as we read all of this material about righteousness, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we have all of this legal teaching, all of this, this kind of righteousness teaching. What is, what is right living? What is Piety. What does it mean to practice your righteousness before the Father in the presence of God as opposed to before the face of men, to be seen by them? All of this, what we might call ethical righteousness type of teaching comes from the one who is righteous. And this is one thing I think this tells us. He is the only one who can tell us what it is to live rightly. And see, here's the truth of it. You have... And you and I both, we all have people in our lives who are telling us what we got to do right, what we got to do, what we've got to do to live well, what we need to do in order to have everything together. There are a whole host of so-called authorities in your life and in my life telling us what we need to be like, look like, and have all kinds of authorities, how we ought to raise our children. You know, I was talking with someone about that recently. All the different voices that come in and tell you, well, you're not doing this right. You need to do that differently. You should do that instead of that. There are lots of authorities in our lives. But only Jesus, the righteous one, has any right to give us clearly what is right and righteous before the face of God because Jesus pleased God perfectly. And I think that adds a kind, of, a kind of gravitas, a kind of weightiness to everything, a heaviness to everything we're about to read because here the person who loved God perfectly from the heart, here the person who loved God the Father perfectly in the way he related to every single person he ever met 
In every motive, in every action, in everything, he did it so perfectly, and he tells us what it looks like. He gives it to us. In fact, Jesus is here giving you his heart, his life in these three chapters. We ask the question sometimes, man, it's so incredible that Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. I wonder what that was like to be around him. Read the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it was like. It was like being around a person who perfectly in every single way did exactly what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. That was Jesus. He was the righteous one. So that's important. Secondly, this king, this preacher gives us the spirit of God. He imparts the spirit of God through whom we are empowered to live righteous lives as well. So look at Matthew 3.11. John the Baptist says this, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, talking about Jesus, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So Jesus is the righteous one. I want you to see the connection between these two ideas. He's the righteous one, perfectly pleasing to God. And he gives us, he imparts his Holy Spirit. And I want you to remember Titus chapter three, verses five to six. You probably are like, not Titus again. We did that enough. But yes, just a little bit more of Titus, because I think this is important for making this transition. In Titus three, which was on this wall, verses five to six, not the entire chapter, but part of it. Verses five to six, it says this, listen, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here's what I want you to see. What I just read from Titus is a description of what happened in your life and my life that John the Baptist was predicting. John the Baptist said, he will baptize, he will baptize you not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what we find there described in Titus is exactly what Jesus does to every single Christian. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit, cleansed, brought to a new way of life. So here's the main idea here. It is the life of Jesus in us. Get this. The Sermon on the Mount is not ethics for a more God-glorifying America. That's not it. The Sermon on the Mount is not ethics for any society, except for the society that is filled with people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Only where Christ reigns as king is their kingdom life. There is no way society can look into this Sermon on the Mount and say, that's great. And now I go back to the beginning where I said, you know, judge not lest you be judged. That's a good one. Let's live by that. Do, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That's a good one. Let's live by that. And just take these little ethical principles and throw them up on the wall and say, that's what it looks like to be a moral upstanding person. No. Everything about this sermon is for those who have Christ reigning supreme over their hearts and who have been regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit of God. Not ethics for society. Not a means of attaining salvation. You don't read the Sermon on the Mount. If you're an unbeliever, you don't read the Sermon on the Mount and go, that's how I'm going to make it. And sometimes the Sermon on the Mount is preached that way. How are you going to make it? You try really hard to enter in this way. You try really hard to do this. You try really hard. You make sure that you don't uh, lust in your heart. 
You make sure that you don't swear falsely. You make sure that you don't do all of these other things that are mentioned, that you don't hate your brother in your heart and so forth. And if you can only do that, if you can hold on to that and keep that kind of life, you have salvation. No. Once again, it is for those in whom Christ, through the Spirit, already reigns supreme. It's this simple. It is the living out of a righteous Christ in us. That's my point. Christ is righteous and he gives the spirit. Those who have the spirit of the righteous Christ have his life. Christ lives out us. He lives out from us. He lives through us and in us. That is what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's the preacher. Much more we could say, of course, but we now must move on to the place. The place. Many throughout history have pointed out what appears to be a parallel between Jesus and Moses in this opening verse and throughout the opening chapters of Matthew. So look at verse 1 of chapter 5. What does it say? He went up on the mountain. He went up on the mountain. What's interesting about this is if you were to compare this to the Greek version, a couple of hundred years before Jesus, there was a, a, a Greek version of the, of the Old Testament that was, that was made, the Septuagint or Septuagint, and that became, the, that became a very standard text that was used by Mediterranean Christians, Greek-speaking, early Greek-speaking Christians, and Jews throughout the diaspora, Jews who had been sent all over the Mediterranean world. And what you find, very interestingly, is the exact same, I think it's a four-word phrase, he went into the mountain, or he went up into the mountain, or on the mountain, is the exact same phrase used in the Greek Old Testament in Exodus of Moses in 19.3, 24.18, and 34.4. So this is my point. I think it is quite likely that when a person, opened, when, when a person heard or read this, and they read chapter 5, verse 1, and they see Jesus went up on the mountain that in their mind, there's Moses. Moses going up on the mountain. And in addition to that, all of the Exodus imagery that we have in the opening chapters. And so, for example, you have this quote in Matthew 2.15. You can look there. Matthew 2.15, a quote from Hosea 11.1. 1. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And you can go all throughout this, these opening four chapters. You also have Jesus being tested in the wilderness, right? Israel was tested in the wilderness. They failed. They came out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. They were tested. They went through the sea of Jesus' baptism. And then you have after that, you have Jesus being tested by the devil, being tempted there. And Jesus holds up under temptation. The Israelites did not hold up under temptation. And so... What I think we have here throughout these opening chapters of Matthew is a, a kind of veiled reference, an implied reference to Moses and to the Exodus. So one co commentator puts it this way. Jesus' ascent of a mountain to deliver his authoritative interpretation and application of God's law to his people is strongly reminiscent of Moses' ascent of Sinai to receive and deliver the law of God. And he goes on to explain that the primary importance of this Exodus and Moses imagery is that it draws our attention to this one thing, this one idea, God's 
deliverance. That's what we have when we think about Moses. We have, of course, the law. But above all, Moses was known among the Hebrews as God's rescuer. He was the deliverer. He was the one who brought deliverance to God's people. The Exodus is deliverance and Moses is the deliverer. And in fact, when we open up the gospel of Matthew, what do we find? Some have, have, have considered this the key verse really for understanding everything in Matthew. Chapter one, verse 21. We looked at it over Christmas. It says this, you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, the Lord's salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. He brings the ultimate deliverance, that is freedom from sin. Moses brought God's people out of bondage in Egypt and brought them from that into the wilderness where God through Moses provided for them, provided water for them and food from heaven, provided protection, uh, victory over God's enemies through the water as it came down upon the Egyptians as they chased them through the sea, which God had parted. God protected his people in every way he delivered them, but Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. He is the deliverer. And I think with many commentators throughout history that when we read in chapter five, verse one, that he went up on the mountain, we are meant to thank Moses. We are meant to thank deliverance. We are meant to understand the fullest interpretation and application of God's holy law. So what does this mean for us? I think it means this as we approach the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of life lived by those who have been set free by the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is for freed people. It is for liberated people. Remember Titus 3.3? What were we before? We, we talked about this last week. What were we before we came to Christ? What were we before the grace of God appeared in each of our individual lives? It's very clear in Titus 3.3, 3, slaves to various passions and pleasures. That's what we were, slaves to worldly passions. But we've been set free. You have been set free, redeemed bought back by God through Jesus. So I think we are meant to consider our deliverance as we go into this sermon. Finally, as we finish up this morning, the people. Probably a better title for today's sermon would be, hear your king. Hear your king. Why do I say that? Well, because the message of the Sermon on the Mount is for disciples. This is very important. Because you can't, you can't turn the Sermon on the Mount into a seeker-friendly kind of thing. You can't turn uh, any kind of treatment of the Sermon on the Mount into this just stripped bare evangelistic thing because it's not that at all. It's not that. The Sermon on the Mount is for the people who call Jesus Master, Lord, King. It is for disciples. It is for those who are already following Jesus. Those who can be called i got to find it here. Those who can be called salt, as he says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Those who can be called light, you are the light of the world. Jesus does not say this to anyone and everyone who would hear this. Who's he speaking to? His followers, his disciples. That's who the sermon is directed towards. It is those for whom Christ is already reigning supreme as king. 
Now, we know that there's a general audience. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, seeing the crowds. We've got these crowds, this crowd of people. And then look at the end of chapter 7. This crowd of people, they reappear in verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So in one sense, Jesus is speaking to the crowds. The crowds are present. The crowds are listening. But what does it say in verse 1? His disciples came to him. And then in verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them. So there's all kinds of ways that you can understand this. You have a crowd of people following Jesus, some of whom are his followers. Just before this passage, we get Jesus calling Peter and Andrew and James and John. So we know at least those four guys are there and other people are there who are following Jesus. They've come up, but there's probably sort of an outer circle, a kind of secondary audience, which is the crowd kind of listening in to what Jesus is saying. And they're there at the end to say, wow, he teaches with authority. And I think that this reminds us that the sermon ought to be heard by all people, but it's not for all people. Because let me tell you what this sermon does if you're not a Christian, for you. This sermon holds up for you a portrait of impossibility in every single way. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God therein, in the Ten Commandments, is impossible for a, a child of Adam someone who has a wicked, corrupt heart, whose heart is deceitful above all things, does not live in accordance with God's perfect standard. That's a fact of the Bible, that you must grapple with that. There is no way that you, if you're an unbeliever, can please God. In fact, God calls you an enemy and a child of his wrathful judgment. That's what God calls an unbeliever. There's no way you can keep God's law. Even more can we not keep God's law from the heart. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's all about not just going through the motions like the scribes and Pharisees. They had all the right motions, but their hearts were, were entirely wicked. Whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. How vivid and evocative is that? That was their lives. And that is the life of every person who makes an effort at trying to please God, but who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's my prayer for you if you're an unbeliever that you won't for a second think you can keep what we're about to look at, but that you will see in that the impossibility of ever winning God's favor, of ever bringing upon yourself his pleasure so that no matter what you do in your life, you will never hear from God if you're an unbeliever. I'm well pleased, my good and faithful servant, never. And even more, that in that you will see in the impossibility of your own righteousness, that you will see the perfect righteousness of this king, this Jesus. And if you're not a believer, that you will look to him. You will say, I need this righteous one who will declare me righteous in his sight and who will infuse me with his Holy Spirit, transform my heart, liberate me from sin, and give me a new kingdom kind of life. That's what I so desperately need. And if you're an unbeliever in Jesus, that is what you desperately need, not ethics. You don't need ethics. You don't need practical nuggets. You need Jesus. Only Jesus. But for those of us who already have him, who already know him, he extends this life to us. 
These words in the first two verses remind us also that Jesus is a good king. He is a good king. His disciples came to him. He's accessible. Jesus invites us to come to him. He does not hide from us. He makes himself available. Not a single person who's a believer here this morning cannot at any moment call on the name of Jesus and Jesus say, yes, yes, I love you, yes. He hears every time we speak to him. Prayer is a wonderful, glorious thing. Jesus really hears. He loves us deeply and he is accessible. He invites us to himself. He speaks clearly. He makes himself known. And we see here with these words, his disciples, that he possesses us. We belong to him. We are his own. This is a good king. This is a loving, kind king. So as we finish this morning, what's the bottom line? The bottom line is this. If you are not a Christian, know that you cannot live this life that we're going to talk about. But you can, by faith, take hold of Christ Jesus and be saved by believing in his death and resurrection. If you are a Christian, know that you can live this. Imperfectly, of course. But to a great degree, yes, we can live this. And one day we will live it perfectly so. Isn't that amazing to think? Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount and thought, man, I just can't, I just, I am so far from that. One day, and even now to a great degree, we will perfectly live that way forever. That's an incredible thing. What a hope. All the sin that ensnares us, that holds us back. As Paul says in Romans 7, I do the things I don't want to do. The things I should do, that I want to do, I don't do. Woe is me. But he delights in the law of God from the inner being. And one day, Paul and all of us will be entirely remade. So we can. We can do it. The righteous one has regenerated your heart. The deliverer has set you free from sin. And the master has called you to live this life as his disciple. I want to close with this prophecy from Deuteronomy 18 which I think factors into this, these words, he went up on the mountain. This is what Moses said to the people of Israel before they were, were to enter the promised land through Joshua. He said this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. God is faithful. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. They were afraid of the Lord. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So the message this morning is hear this prophet. Hear this king. Brother and sister in Christ, hear 
your king. Let's pray.